trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Heather Knight, and this is the Surviving to Thriving podcast. One in four women will experience severe physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. We're going to discuss the taboo topic of domestic violence and the tools our thrivers have used to succeed in life. We want you to know that you are not alone in this fight. Please keep listening if you or anyone you know has been impacted by domestic violence. Before we get into today's episode, I would like to thank our sponsor, Night Protection Services for making this podcast possible and all the support they provide our cause. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Surviving to Thriving. Today we've got Rosie Aiello with us. She is a thriver and um, she's going to tell us her story of domestic violence and how she went from surviving that situation to now thriving. She's thriving through being an international award-winning entrepreneur. She's going to talk about starting her own business. She's a speaker, a best-selling author. She also has the Freedom Fulfillment Foundation, which I'm going to let her talk about. And she is on this movement to help 100 million women and children free themselves from abuse and help them begin to believe that they deserve to be treated with kindness. Um, and that's what her foundation is based on, but I'm going to let her go into all of what she's doing. She has certifications in neuro-linguistics programming, which we've talked a little bit about on this podcast. So if you haven't, if you don't have the full background of what that is, go back to and listen to previous episodes so you kind of understand what we're going to be talking about. She's a life coach, executive coach, and has certifications in timeline dy- dynamics and has an MBA in finance. Rosie, you have an amazing background, and <laughs> thank, you. So thank you for coming on the show, and thank you for being willing to share your story to our thrivers. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me, and it's always a pleasure. Um, yeah. Every time I share my story, if I can help one person, it's, it's worth it. It, it definitely is. So um, I want to kind of start all the way back <laughs> at the beginning. <laughs> so okay. what was what was it like um, growing up for you? What was your childhood like, high school, that whole family dynamic? It's kind of funny. Uh, I'm with somebody now, and he says, he goes, I think you just grew up in a bubble. <laughs> you know, um, you know I, I grew up in a small town. It was, um, my background's Italian, and, you know, to my uh, little eyes, I think everybody in the, in the, little, in the town were, were Italians. And so we grew up, you know, I was Italian Catholic. And we had a fabulous neighborhood. We just like, my parents picked out a neighborhood where everyone was, had young families and we just, we played with each other. We, there was enough, you know, to make two teams for a baseball. We played, it was just like this little cul-de-sac that was like in the shape of a cross. So it was like private, right? You know, there's hardly any traffic going in. And it was just, it was, it was actually quite nice. You know, I had a really pretty fun um, childhood. I was active in, in high school. I was on a council, city, not city council, but um, um, government, the school government. Yeah, school government. Yeah, that's it. School government. It's been so long since I even said this. <laughs> Actually, I was on the city council. I was the first student member on the uh, board of education. Really? Um, yeah. I forgot about that. But, um, you know, I, I enjoyed my, my high school. I had a boyfriend there, um, a couple of boyfriends. Okay. You know, I was dating. Right. <laughs> I was dating. But, uh, you know, all very nice. 
right? Very nice. But, you know, of course, as I look back, I can see different things that are going on, yeah. which I wasn't aware of. Went to college, went to Berkeley, and okay. that was, again, you know, an expansive, you know, from this small town going to a big university, although it wasn't that far from me geographically, but, you know, it was mind-wise and it just expanded my mind, which I absolutely loved. I absolutely yeah. loved it. What did you I was, go to Berkeley for? Or what did you get your degree in? Uh, I have a double major, actually, in uh, French and economics. Uh, okay. two unusual <laughs> majors. I was going to be a French um, school teacher, but I changed my mind. And uh, so I got an economics and then I got an MBA in finance when I did graduate work. So it all worked out because I used my French my entire life, actually. Yeah. Uh, it, it's come in handy everywhere I've worked. And when I lived overseas, it was all uh, really good. When you got out of college, did you go straight into doing master's or did you get a job or did you go overseas then? Or <laughs> Well, I, I was not planning to go into graduate school right away. And I, actually, I was interviewing for a job. You know, I went in, I interviewed with, you know, the vice president and then the president and then everybody else. And they said, oh yeah, we want you, you know, start on Monday. So I, you know, go show up on Monday and they said, oh, well, we changed our mind. So what I learned at a very young age was you need to get it in writing, you know, until it was in writing, you know, now it's like, it'll be an email. Or something. Right. But, so that, that really is like, I, I just couldn't believe it. It's like, you know, this didn't make sense to me. So that was pretty upsetting. And then I talked to, I was talking to a friend of mine. And he said, well, why don't you, you know, go to graduate school? And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so it was not going to graduate school and going to get an MBA was not a life plan. It was like my life went this way and it didn't work out. So now I'm redirecting. And, and I think as I look back, this has been maybe one of my superpowers you know, let's just put it this way. I get myself into a mess and then I will figure it out and then I regret. So uh, just like, you know, I, I started with a undergraduate in French. I knew I, the teaching market was flooded. It's like, it's not going to work. I'm going to, you know, I'm re I evaluate what's going on, redirect and do something else. You know, got a supposed job proposal offer, didn't work out, redirected and then got into this. So that's, and you'll see <laughs> as we go through my life. That has been a pattern. You know, the goal, of course, is to make those, those boo-boos shorter. <laughs> you right. self-correct faster than, than years, but sometimes they take a long time. Yes, definitely. So did you, um, so you went to get your master's? You went, did you actually go to school or did you do it online? I'm in my master's program right now, but I'm online. Yeah, no, no, this was, uh, these were the days <laughs> before there was online <laughs> education. <laughs> <laughs> so no, it was all in person. And then I got a really great job. I worked in Silicon Valley in, uh, in California, in the San Jose, Santa Clara area for some high tech companies. And, and it was great. And I, used, I was, used my French right there. It was the first time I started to use my French. I helped them with the marketing copy. Then they sent me overseas to work in their Paris office to help out there. So I had a really, really great experience. I, I met my ex- the husband from whom I escaped, I met him at Berkeley and then we kind of continued to, we, we weren't really very, we weren't serious when we were dating then. We just went mm -hmm. on a few dates, but years and years later, we connected and um, he'd okay. already moved back to the Middle East. And um, Was he there on a um, 
a student? Yeah, when he was in the United yeah. States. Yeah, he was on a, on a student visa in the okay. beginning. He was on a student visa. He um, did um, part of his undergraduate work at Stanford, and then he continued his graduate work at Berkeley. So he was a graduate student when I was an undergraduate student. And that's how when we first met, but we didn't get married for a long, much, much, not until much, much later. Okay. So you moved to Paris, you said after you just- I was there on a special assignment. I was, okay. uh, I mean, I lived there for a while, uh, but I didn't actually, I mean, I didn't, I was there for maybe three, four months as I was helping the, that uh, French division of the American company I was working for. So I was helping that division because I knew the language and I knew the finance. I was, I was the only one in the company that had all the skills that they needed. And I had, and when I was in college, I'd already studied in Paris before. So this was not my first trip there. Okay. After that, did you move back to the States or did you, okay. Yeah. What did yeah, what'd you back. do in that? Okay. Well, then I, I, when I moved back, I continued working for the company and then I worked for another company in Silicon Valley. Okay. So hmm. when did your ex-husband come back into your life? So this is a, a really good question and not very many people ask this. You know, like I said, we met in Berkeley, but in the interim, he had moved back. Uh, he had moved to, to Saudi Arabia, but he came back to the United States probably, you know, once a year to, uh, for business, for, for the company he was working for and, and for whatever reasons. But every year, you know, that one time he would just make a call and say hi, literally. So for maybe 10 years, it was call and say hi, call and say hi. And, uh, you know, it was actually something I kind of admired in him that he knew how to, you know, just stay in contact with people. Yeah. And so one time when he called and said hi, I wasn't in a relationship and he wasn't in a relationship. And we started to actually kind of rekindle something that we had, you know, when we first met when we were in uh, Berkeley. So. That's how it started. So he was living overseas when we restarted our relationship. Okay. Um, were there any red flags that you saw prior to this? Like when you guys went on, you know, your couple of dates in Berkeley or during this 10 year period where you, you hadn't really started redating or anything like that? You know, I didn't know the term red flags until I came back here, okay? Right. So, you know, hindsight is always great. So the answer is no. At the time, I didn't see any red flags because I didn't know what red flags were. I didn't know anything, you know. Right. So this is, you know, being back here now has been my whole transformation and in my growth. So, and I think that's the key problem. And now this is the work that I do is helping women start to see what these red flags are. When you think it's a normal relationship, you just... And then we start making excuses. So, uh, no, probably like most women, we don't see those. We don't see those red flags. Right. We're not. You know, we don't see the red flags because we're not looking for them. Exactly. We're not trained. I think one of the things that that I really love that my daughter had said that you know when soldiers go into combat, they're trained. They're trained for years and years of how to fight and how to be aware and how to how to be how to defend themselves. When you go into a relationship, you don't go in ready to for combat. Right. You don't go in expecting that you need to defend yourself. So we nobody has those skills. 
Right. And if you, and if you, and again, I know how you, you know, you asked me in the beginning, how did I grow up? You know, again, I think looking back now, decades later, right? Well, my mother probably was a little, you know, a little verbally abusive to my father. Uh, my father was extremely kind. And, you know, I have something I can share on that later, but it's all these things. So no, I, I didn't know a single red flag. Right. Did you, well, looking back, can you see, could you see them then? Or did you not really see yeah. the red flags until you guys started officially dating? No, 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 no. I didn't see any red flags until, not even when we were dating. I did not, I, I was married. Let me just, you know, fast forward a little bit yeah. so you can get a perspective here. I was married 18 years before I knew I was in an abusive relationship. And that was only after I happened to grab a copy of a book and then it started to describe. Right. So all the dating, all the, uh, you know, that I experienced, didn't know what it was. Right. Right. Again, exactly. you can yeah. see from my background, it doesn't matter how smart you are <laughs> or the education level you have, it right. doesn't matter. And I know I still, to this day, I mean, just a few weeks ago, this woman asked me, like, like, and like, how can somebody so smart be in, you know, get themselves stuck in this? Well, yeah, you know, well, it happens. You no, know, you know, they're just extremely yeah. very clever and they suck you in and hook you in and then your brain gets all weird. Right. <laughs> yeah. Domestic violence has no bounds, no, no bounds. economic, um, no social, economic or race or anything. It, mm. it doesn't matter who you are, it's the abuser and the way that they act and who they manipulate and how they manipulate it and, and that sense for sure. So you guys rekindle uh, 10 years after you first started kind of doing some, you had some dates in college and then a 10 year period. And now you got, you said you started dating while he was still overseas. Yeah. I mean, so then it was kind of, you know, it was a long distance relationship. He would call and we'd, you know, be on the phone for an hour. And um, again, that was the days before uh, Skype and Zoom and, you know, whatever. So right. <laughs> the calls were getting expensive. Then he would come over, you know, every now and then and, you know, he'd spend some time here. So, okay. So he was going back and forth as well to the United States. Right. During right. that whole time period. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Um, sorry, just trying to get like the, um, the whole gist of. Yeah, the, the whole perspective. Yeah. yeah. And he had a, and by then he had a, um, a green card. Okay. Not a U.S. citizen. No, he never got citizenship. He had a green card. Okay. So you guys are, what, at what point do you guys have a in-person relationship? Oh, we, well, within the, the first year after we, um, you know, when he, when he called, you know, every time he made a call, it was, he was in the United States. So that one time when he called and we were both whatever, we saw each other. Actually, I kind of remember this now. I think I was, it was around Easter. And so I invited him over for dessert. And my parents were there and, and they had known him from my college days. Okay. And that's kind of how it started. Did your parents approve of him originally? I know um, talking to a lot of people, everybody's like, my parents hated him from the beginning and that should have been my first clue as to what was going on. 
was he able to manipulate your parents as well? Or did they kind of give you that, hey, Rosie, I don't know if this is the guy for you? You mean like when we were in college? College or when you guys first like officially started dating? I see. Ten years later? Ten mm-hmm. years later? I don't know what my parents thought in the first, because, you know, when we were first dating in college, it wasn't, I don't even, I don't even know if my parents knew that we dated at all because it was not that serious. Maybe, you know, maybe four or five dates or something. It wasn't very serious. On the second go around, my mother never verbalized it, but I don't think she approved of him or liked him. And I think she saw in, she saw things in him. Uh, my dad was just, you know, the kind of guy who saw the good in everybody. Uh, so he didn't say anything to me. So no, they never said anything. And they were, they were the kind of parents who basically supported what I wanted. You know, it's kind of like, why didn't you say something? Mom and dad? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> you know? But you know, not really anybody, my, none of my friends did either, right? You, you know, so stage is like when you say you're in love with somebody, you know, the lat, you're not going to hear that it's not a good thing. Right. And again, back then, you know, abuse and especially verbal abuse was, was not, was not well known term. I mean, even, yeah. even, I can't even believe it even today as I do this work how much, you know, people really don't know about domestic violence or domestic abuse and, you know, all the words that we, we use around it. I have my own term, which I'll tell you about a little bit later. You know, we weren't talking about it. Right. So, you, you know, that book that I read much, much later gave me the vocabulary and the awareness of it. Right. You know, well, to, it, was, it was good because now I knew I wasn't really crazy. Right, exactly. And especially having a, a long distance relationship where you, you may see each other, you know, very limited. So it's, it's clearly not a physical abusive relationship at this point. Mm-hmm. It, it is very psychological or, or mental or verbal. And even mm-hmm. today, I couldn't imagine, you know, back then that nobody really knows what those are or how they manifest or what they look like or anything like that. So I can imagine that not very many people even knew how to describe it. Exactly. You know, exactly. And, you know, and we were, you know, one time he invited me out here. I'm still working. Okay. Cause I'm still in the United States and I'm still working. And he says, you know, why don't you take a, a weekend and come to Paris with me so you can help me find an apartment. Uh, now to somebody that might sound really intriguing right? I live on the West Coast. I cannot go to Paris for a weekend as as enticing as that is. And I mean, he knows I love Paris. Um, We actually had seen each other in Paris, you know, decades before when I was um, a student. And, but he, but he got really upset. He got really upset that I didn't accept that. Right. To to spend six hours looking for, meeting with travel time and only having a few days and it would have been six hours of just apartment hunting. And that doesn't sound fun to anybody. You know, so it's like, and so, but that, he held that against me for decades. You know, we don't have a, we don't have a, a place in, in Paris because you didn't go out with me that one time and help me decide for it. But he did right. make me feel guilty over that. But see, again, I didn't know that that was being abusive. Right. Right? That it, that it wasn't like, Oh, I'm just a bad person. I didn't help him. Right. Exactly. Yeah, but he was blaming me, you know, that the blame disguised as, you know, you could have done something better. Right. 
exactly. You're working. You guys have this long distance relationship. How long did you, how long were you guys in a long distance relationship before you moved to the Middle East? Correct. He did not move. So how long was, what did that go on? About two years. So we were, uh, yeah, we were long distance dating for two years. During that time period, I did go visit his family. I did go to Saudi Arabia and I went where he was working and I went to Lebanon where his family's from and I did meet them first. Okay. Um, and then just to kind of get a, you know idea what the Middle East was really like. Yeah. Um, but I'm pretty adaptable. I like culture. So that was a, kind of an exciting thing for me. Yeah. Anyway. You didn't see red flags, obviously, while you were inside the relationship. But during that two-year period, looking back, what were some of those red flags that you can now recognize? Um, you mentioned one, the gaslighting, um, where he'd make you feel guilty for right. everything. What other red flags were there? Because it's a long, you know, and I ask that because it's a long distance relationship, whereas right. it's not in person where you can have those very common red flags that you see in, in these types of relationships. They're, I feel like they'd be very different. There was a time I was, uh, I had gone on a um, river rafting event with my company, you know, it was to build, you know, teamwork and all that, but you can bring your spouse or something like that. So we were on a phone call and I was telling, oh yeah, I just came back from this great, you know, we're rafting trip, you know, it was so much fun. And I had my team, you know, and I fell out of the boat and almost drowned, but it was, you know, I had a great time. Right. And his only focus, I, it was almost like he wasn't even listening to me. His only focus is, well, why didn't you invite me? You see how you turned your head? It was, that was exactly what it was like. Why are you right? You know, it's like I mean, and I and I told him. I said, "Well, it didn't even occur to me that I would invite you for you know to come you know halfway around the world to spend a weekend with me on this trip." I didn't, you know, it literally didn't. But he took it as that he wasn't important, he wasn't enough, and all of that. And it's like, oh my god, and he got really upset. So that was again some of the pattern of him getting really upset. Sometimes I would be at the office, he would call me and say, oh, can you do this for me? Like, you know, call and get information about this computer and, and maybe I'll pick it up the next time I come. Something like, things like that, right. where I had to do an action for him. And then he'd call the next day, again at work. Now, I didn't have a private office then. And I'm out in this cubicle. And so it's like, I can't really talk. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, out in the open and like, you know, I'm, on, I'm working, right? And so he'd get mad at me again, he would get mad at me because I didn't do what he asked. So right. there's this pattern forming where he was always getting mad at me because I didn't do what he asked. But it seemed to me the way he was framing it, right? You know, putting the guilt on me, making me feel bad. You know, if you were better, if you were good, you would have done what I asked. So those were, there was a lot of those. Uh, he asked he, I didn't deliver the way he wanted or when he wanted to. He would get angry at me. He would blame me. That was a pattern. But I just thought, oh, I wasn't, you know, oh, I want to please this man. You know, he's such a great guy. You know, he's really nice. I want to, to do what I can to, to be a good partner. That right. was going on in my brain. Right, exactly. And that's been a lot of um, what I've, heard from people and then also in my own experiences that you always you want to make these excuses because you want to believe that 
nobody could really be that person. Nobody could really ever act like that. It, it's got to be something inside of me. It's got to be something that I'm doing wrong to make them act like that. Yeah, absolutely, Heather. I mean, this is exactly it. And, you know, so now, you know, one of the things that, you know, I teach women is that one of the men, major red flags is, are you making excuses in this relationship? Because, you know, just, and that just takes care of everything. Well, yeah, you know, we make excuses for their behavior and then we make excuses for their behavior. And then on top of that, we blame ourselves. Talk about a double whammy. Right. It's, it's great. And it's, I think that even if you're not in an abusive relationship, women are always so hard on themselves anyways, yeah. that it's just, it's kind of, I don't want to say expected, but it's almost like our brains expect us to do that because that's, we're we doing it to ourselves anyways. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, I'm preparing for a talk, you know, and part of it is just like, you know, the, 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 uh, the please disease, you know, the cost of being too nice of being too nice, right? right? And so society grooms us to be this way, right? We're groomed to be that way. We're nurturing. So we have a lot to kind of out counter uh, to offset because we want to be nice. We want to be liked. We want to be caring. And yet we don't think about the cost to ours. And then what happens is that we end up losing ourselves. So as I was being nice to him and accommodating to him I lost myself you have two years of this relationship what made you decide I'm moving to the Middle East and I'm going to well when he asked me to marry him right? okay <laughs> so when he asked me to marry him you know it was um you know, it was obviously a big step and that's why I had gone to the Middle East first to see how it would be and it was kind of you know as I look back it was a rocky in a way, a rocky relationship because he was always getting angry at me. And even, Heather, even in my vows, I wrote the vows. And in part of the vows, I would say, what was it? It was like quick to forgive, like stop, you know, short on anger and quick to forgive or something like that. Because I knew he was always angry. And, you know, but obviously that didn't matter. So anyway, so yeah, we got married and, you know, I, of course, left my corporate job. So here I am, you know, rising pretty fast in my company. So I left my family, my friends, and my career, everything on which I built myself, who I am. Now I'm left, I went to the Middle East, not only the Middle East, I went to Saudi Arabia, which is the most, one of the most conservative countries on earth. Yeah. You know, and I was now draped in black, you know, covered in the black abaya. I had a black scarf. Only when I went out, not, I didn't always wear my black scarf, but I always wore the black abaya, which is a long black. So it was, it was dramatic, the, the change for me. It was a very, very dramatic change. But I was willing to do that for love and to create a family and, and have this life. Right. Because we know they're not all bad. Right. You know, if they were all bad all the time, then no one in their right mind would do that. Otherwise, you'd just be a masochist. But there right. is enough good, right? It's the, the roller coaster. Yep. Right? The Dr. Jekyll, Mr. High, whatever you want to call it, yeah. where they're really, really, and they're really nice. I mean, it's like, you know, up until then, he was like the best guy I'd ever been with. And then much later, it's like, and he was the worst guy. But I didn't know that, the worst guy yet. 
that was much, right. much, much, much later. But he was the worst, he was the best guy. He's like, oh my gosh. So that's what, that's what they hook us in. And, and part of them is really that. And part of them is not so nice. Right. So you get proposed to, you go, did you guys have this huge wedding? Was it very, you know, the, the Middle Eastern wedding or was it very small and, and intimate? What was your wedding day like? Well, this is interesting. Uh, we were supposed to get married in Lebanon. Um, I, I, I had actually been married before in the United States. So we said, okay, I'll get married. We'll get married in Lebanon. Lebanon was still in um, heavy rage of war, one of its many wars. He had come over to get me. He had come over to get me. And while he was here, um, we got news from his family that the, his cousin, who was supposed to be his best man, was killed in a sniper fire. So his mother said, and, he, and she says, oh, you know, my brother just passed away from cancer. You know, we're all in mourning. You know, just get married there, meaning in the States. So we had uh, a small wedding here. A week later, I was out of here. I had flew, you know, went, uh, went back to the Middle East. Okay. Did you, so you left everything behind here? Yeah, I left everything behind. I had a house. Uh, we just left it empty for the moment. We left it empty and packed up a suitcase and, and moved. Wow. That had to have, was it scary? Was it like, were you excited? Were, were you? No, it wasn't scary because no, I was excited. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, I don't think, you know, again, you know, Rosie makes these decisions. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, maybe you should have thought about that. But um, no, I, I, I never was. I, I never was afraid. I was always excited, uh, learning new things. Uh, the, uh, you know, despite what you hear in the in the news and everything, when you get to know Arab people, they are really very, very kind. Yes. They're, uh, you know, it's, it's politics versus everybody else. But exactly. you know, they have generous hearts. The, the, the Saudi women, the Saudi men are just very, very generous people. Very, um, they're, they're a close society in the sense that they don't, they're not open and vivacious like that. But giving, giving and, and that, that deep generosity, very, very much so. Definitely. I um, studied abroad in Morocco for about three months and mm. it was the best time ever. Yeah. It, mm -hmm. it really was just because the people, they were always so, yeah. so giving, so generous. They'd help yeah. you all mm -hmm. around. So yeah. yeah, definitely good people. So you moved to Saudi Arabia mm -hmm. and what was, what was that like? What was, what was the cult, was it a culture shock or were you kind of already because you had visited you know what's going on or was it just a complete it, it it was still a huge huge cultural shock for me um of course just to remind everybody I, I couldn't drive you know women were not allowed to drive women just got the right to drive about a year ago so I couldn't drive you know again I didn't I gave up my career so but I, I worked in his company but you know just seeing everybody you know women just dressed in black and a lot of them, I was in Riyadh, which is the capital, so it's, it was more conservative than the coastal cities in, in Dahran, which is on the Persian Gulf, and Jeddah, which is on the Red Sea. They're a little bit more, in quotes, say liberal, but not liberal. But more open, more open than those in, in Riyadh. So most of the women were covered from head to toe in black. So, you know, I would be in a, in a shopping center, a shopping mall, and you just see all these black ghosts, you know, just moving along. It's weird. I'm going to say it's, it's, it's a, it, for a foreigner, a Western person, it's really, 
you know, just so different. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, once they, you know, you go in their home and they go in your home and they take, you know, take off their, their abai and everything else, they're just like us, right? right. Um, and, and just a little bit more beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, wearing those, you know, covering their face, they're protected from the sun. So their skin is like perfect. Oh my God. Right. <laughs> um, but again, they're just, they're very, very sweet inside. But it's just when you're looking out, the men, the Arab, the Saudi men, the Saudi men, would wear what's called these white thobes, like a, let's imagine a white dress t-shirt, a uh, dress shirt, you know, with long sleeves that goes down to their ankles. Yeah. You know, uh, and then they have the gutra, the, you know, the headdress, to, you know, and this is all to protect themselves from the, the crazy sun and all that, all the dust from the sand. Mm-hmm. Did, did you have to conform to their culture or were you still wearing Western clothes or, or what was, did he make you eventually change over to? So, so my ex-husband is um, a Christian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox. Okay. Uh, and so he wore Western clothes. He didn't okay. wear, cause he's not Saudi. Right? He's not Saudi. He wore Western clothes. So the, so Western men wore Western clothes. Okay. Right. Their own, you know, pants, shirt. Most didn't wear ties because it's just too hot. Right. right. Uh, the women wore we wore our regular clothes but when we went out of the house we wore the black abaya now the u.s embassy just and you you know you just be dressed conservatively uh mm-hmm. sometimes if you wore long sleeves and long dress you know to your ankles it would be okay but it was like you know in, in rome do as the romans do why why fight it you know this right. is their culture so i respected it you know i just got just like you used to put on a watch, of course, no one puts on a watch now, but whatever, you know, in the days that you used to throw on a watch, you know, you put on the abai. I put on the thing, and it was, you know, right before I got out of the house, I just wrapped around me, and then, you know, you just got used to it, so, you know, I respected that, so when I, and, <laughs> you know, sometimes, you know, when you're not in the mood to dress up, you can just throw anything on and put that thing over you, and it didn't really matter, <laughs> right, <laughs> I mean, you're going grocery shopping or something. Uh, but it was, it was, it was, a, you know, it was still, you know, to see all of these people, you know, dress so differently and then their thinking was differently. Saudi Arabia does not allow the, uh, does not allow open practice of any Christianity. So everything had to be done. Uh, eventually the U S embassy opened up a beautiful embassy in the, in the quarter there. And so services were held for uh, within the embassy. So we had, you know, official diplomatic protection there. And, and of course the Saudis knew what was going on because people would come in at a certain hour and leave at a certain hour, you know, so right. they knew what was going on, but they couldn't do anything. So you couldn't wear a cross. You couldn't wear any public display of, or to show Christianity or anything. So no crosses, no, no nothing. Did you grow up in a strong Christian faith? I did. Uh, you know, my parents were uh, Italian Catholics. So I, okay. I grew up in, in that, uh, in that faith. And, um, and we continue that. My ex-husband, he, he went, even though he's Greek Orthodox uh, and he grew up in Lebanon. So he went all through Catholic schools through college. And it was a Christian Catholic school it wasn't until he went to graduate school overseas that it was uh, secular. Gotcha. So what was that like having to hide your religion? You know, if you you grew up in a very strong faith, did, did you keep your faith all through up until this point? And what was it like to have to hide 
that aspect of yourself. Well, I didn't really like it, you know, it was just something I had to accept. And then I finally met people. And so then we were able to kind of practice um, our religion. Uh, and then, like I said, then we finally moved, it was moved to the embassy. My daughter, uh, just kind of skipping ahead here, but my daughter was born in, in, in Saudi Arabia and then she, and she had her Holy Communion in Saudi Arabia. Wow. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's, yeah, so, you know, again, we, we did stuff. We did right. Stuff. Yeah. Are you still able to practice yeah. just not openly? Right. Just not openly. You're there, you're married, you're kind of, you know, you've got these like head turning moments where it's like, well, okay, that was kind of weird that he said that or is acting like that. When did it change? When did it become that there were no longer head turning moments? It's, it was, okay, this is not the way this relationship should be going. You know, it took a long time because, um, you know, I would, I remember so many times he would sit me down and just literally scream at me for anywhere from one to four hours wow. and just you know, rip me up you know, inside and out. I mean, just what a horrible person I was. And, and then after we had my daughter, you know, what a horrible mother I was. I know you love her, but you're a terrible mother. So, I mean, all these things, and I got it over and over. And he said, you know, if you know, if you, you know, he would always ask for an apology and then, and then, and be better. If you can be better. So then, so for, you know, decades, it was that living that and trying to be better. Okay. I'm going to be better. This, you know, I'm going to make this marriage work. I'm living overseas. I got to make the marriage work. It's important. All of these things going on through my head. So you, you, you know, having the social pressure, um, my own pressure, um, the religion, you know, growing up is like, well, you got to stay with the family and all, all this thinking, you know, right. That has been, you know, buried into my brain and trying to make this thing work. And it wasn't until you know, we've come to the United States to visit my family. It wasn't until I went to a bookstore, saw some book titles, grabbed a book off the shelf, started to read it. And then it wasn't until then, Heather, that I had a book in my hand that I saw it and started to read the words and the experiences. And I said, oh my God, this is my life. Yeah. And I didn't want to accept it. It's like, you know, it was like there was no hope for this marriage to work. And it's like, oh my God, you know, no, 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 no. I'm going to make this marriage work. You know, I'm going to be the exception. <laughs> That's right. Make marriage work. And so, plus, this is really important. And, you know, you told me about this other woman you, you were interviewing before. But, you know, in the Middle East, and I don't know if she said this, in the Middle East, custody automatically goes to the father. There are no custody cases. You know, so, you know, between yeah. birth and seven years, the mother can take care of the child. After seven years, that the father can take custody of the child. You have no wow. say. So I knew, so not knowing I was in an abusive relationship, I knew from a very early stage, I was very unhappy and I couldn't figure out why I couldn't make this marriage happy. I couldn't be happy in it, but I didn't have the vocabulary. So I was very unhappy from a very, very long time. Know, very, from almost the very beginning, but yeah. I didn't know why, and I didn't know, you know, what the words were. But and I just kept trying to make it work because that's the kind of person I am. So it wasn't until that book, when I was married for eighteen years, did I finally understand 
And by then we had already moved to Lebanon. And my daughter was not yet a major. She was not yet 18. Okay. So for all of that time, was it only a verbal and um, psychological abuse or was there physical abuse that also came with that uh, during that time period before you knew what you were living in? Right. So this is an interesting question and, 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 and I'm going to word it. So it's like, even this is how, how I even start to say things. It's like, well, it was mostly verbal and gaslighting and psychological, lots of financial abuse, lots of financial abuse. It was a little, with, with a little um, physical and sexual abuse thrown in. So physical, pure physical abuse um, was to my recollection twice where he squeezed my arm so hard it turned, you know, you could see the imprints of his fingers on my arm. The sexual abuse was after, after these, these blow-ups, right? He would explode, you know, he would have talked to me for, lectured me for, you know, one, two, whatever hours, you know, he'd be furious, it's like the volcano erupted and now it's calmed down and he's fine. Now, you know, he's, he's calming down. Of course, I'm still reeling and then, but he wants to have sex. And it's like, I would just agree because it's like, I don't want to get yelled at again. Right. So um, it was just, I acquiesced, but man, I, 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 I wanted to be nowhere near him. So if that's defined as sexual abuse, I had plenty of that. It, I, it definitely is. Um, right. it, 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 that is, you know, if it's not willing from both parties, Exactly. It is, it is sexual. Exactly. So that's, you know, that's what I experienced. And yeah, everything right. was out of fear. So my relationship was a relationship of fear. How, how to keep the peace. I'm sure a lot of these women who know it, it's like, you know, you're trying to keep the peace. If you're trying to keep the peace, that's a red flag. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it's a red flag. Uh, if you can't speak your mind, if you're afraid to speak your thoughts. Those are red flags. Yeah. All of these are red flags. But see, you know, again, I didn't know that. Right. And, and even, even if you knew those red flags, again, we're making excuses for these men because there's, there's no way that, it's, that he can be like that or it was just one time. It won't happen again. Right. Right. Oh, everyone's got a temper, you know. Oh, I'm not. I, and then the women will say, I'm not perfect. You know, I get upset. So, yeah, but it's different. Yeah. yeah. Plus, you know, I had the issue of my daughter and, you know, I made conscious decisions that I would never leave without my daughter. I would never do anything to jeopardize that I might leave, uh, lose her, nothing. So I had to make the decision that I had to stay. And so after, when I had the realization, um, she was under 18, then she went on to college. She went on to college at the American University of Beirut. So she was still going, you know, she was still in Lebanon. Okay. And she was enjoying her time up to a point. And that's when she told me she was a junior at the, at the university. So she was about, um, she was 20 when she told okay. me that, you know, you got to take me away from my abusive father. Because when I had read the book, I had, then I said, look, I just found out, you know, this is not a healthy relationship. Because when she became an adolescent, then he started to be verbally abusive to her. Wow. That was going to be one of my 
questions if she ever suffered or just heard? Both. Okay. Both. Both. And in fact, when she was little, when she was like seven, eight, nine, you know, especially during that period, there was just three of us. I didn't have any other children, just one to one daughter. So the three of us, for example, would be at dinner and he would start getting on my case about something. And, and she was, she would come and I knew this was my MO. I knew if I spoke, I would make things worse, you know, and it would accelerate his, his, um, vitriol. So I just stayed mute um, because then he would accuse me of being aggressive. Right. And my daughter would pipe in and say, Oh, you know, that's not nice, Papa. You know how you're talking to mama. Don't talk to mama like that. And then he, he thought that was so cute. He would call her mama's little lawyer. So here I am sitting mute at the table, feeling like shh, whatever crap, yeah. because you know, I have a seven-year-old daughter who's defending me because I'm not speaking up. But the reason I'm not speaking up is because I know it's going to make it worse. But in her eyes, you know, again, this is how this perpetuates and, and how, you know, I'll quote unquote, become the image of a bad mother because she doesn't see me speaking up and, and, and defending myself and showing my rights. So what kind of a model is that for her? Not only having her having to take on in that, in that case, those cases, that adult role, none of it is right. 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 So, you know, so she recognized when you gave her this book, she recognized that she was living that same. Well, I didn't give her the book because it was okay. there's no way she, she wasn't old enough to read that book. Okay. But, you know, after having read the book, I, then explained to her what it was and what the name of it was. And, and I told her, I said, look, you know, when you're ready, if, and when you're ready to leave, you know, just let me know. Of course. And I didn't realize that until much later, what a heavy burden that was on her when I made that statement. But it was like, I, I was just thinking, you know, I'm not leaving you. So, but if you right. want to leave, because she was very unhappy and I knew that we would have all these talks with each other. Yeah. So I knew so, how much she was suffering. Yeah, so she's away at college, essentially. But not so. away. Not away, okay. Yeah, so <laughs> in, in Lebanon, because it's a small country, most people, most children will live at home until they get married. Okay. Okay. So the first year, and, and I was trying to get her out of the house, so I had to do a lot of negotiation for her to be able to live at least the first year in the dorm. So, and the university wanted that too. So because I had the university backing, he, he acquiesced and allowed her to, to live in the dorm the first year. But after that, he wanted her back home. So she had to live at home the whole time. Wow. So she was still getting that abuse, even though she was in, in college. Just right. In the culture. Yeah. And that first year she would be, she would be on Facebook, you know, at midnight chatting, you know, he would be, he would be watching her. And then he would call her up at midnight and say, why are you on Facebook? Get off, get off. You should be studying. And she may have had an exam the next day, but you know, you know how kids are, you know, right. college <laughs> life. You right. know, I was like, God, I don't have my parents all over me, but he was all over her. And, and she would get so upset and then she couldn't focus on, on the exam. And I mean, she was, it was very, very difficult for her. Yeah. So she calls. Yeah. And, and I, I couldn't imagine what it would be like as a child going through that at, at all. Uh, you know, I don't want to say anything of like, oh, it must have been 
this for her because I just I don't know what it was like for her. But you get this call from her. She's 20 years old saying that she wants she's ready to leave now. So what what happens after that? Yeah, so she had um she actually come home from the university when she told me. And again, I don't find this out too much later. I had told her that like several years before. So it wasn't top of my mind when she came and said, no, no, take me away. I mean, my right. first reaction was, you only have one year left. You only have one year left to graduate. Can't you wait? That was my first reaction after I, <laughs> she goes, no, mom, I can't. And I said, okay. And so I planned uh, the escape in four months. Wow. That is, so what was, what was your first step that you took when when she gave you that call what was the first immediate thing that you knew you had to do to get this whole thing in, in motion well i uh, contacted my brother so when oh this is another perfect something else when i got the book at married in 18 years this is when i discovered everything prior to that nobody and i mean nobody knew what i was going through so i kept it all to myself after I read that book, I wrote to my brother and my two best friends in the United States. So in by now we're together for 20 years. So only three people knew what, what I was experiencing. So when I uh, said that I needed to, and that we were going to plan an escape, I told two more friends in Lebanon. They were both Americans. One was married Lebanese, one was married to somebody else. And because I needed their help. So five people in 25 years knew what I was going through. So this is another red flag, you know, you keep it to yourself, they isolate you and then you isolate yourself because of the shame. So my brother, of course, wanted me out as soon as he, he knew about it. Right. So I told him and, and then I started packing things up. I mean, the first things I took were the photo albums of my daughter. I mean, that was the first thing I took. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even know. I, I, when I was, and again, you know, you wonder how all these things kind of work in your life. So I'm going to step back and, and kind of piece it together for you. Because when I was working in corporate, I was in budgeting, forecasting, strategic planning. I knew how to plan and organize. I mean, I right. planned, organized the entire friggin' company. So, and that's one. Two, this was not my first escape. The first time we were living in Saudi Arabia when we were under threat of being attacked by Iraq. So it was not a really difficult escape, but it's still you kind of had to gather up your things and you know you had to get out to protect yourself. The, right. second, the second escape, which was a little bit, it was a little more, it was scarier. Was yeah. during, it was during the Lebanese-Israeli war when the Hezbollah attacked Israel and Israel was bombing the heck out of, out of Lebanon. I was in. I was during. I was in the middle of that one of, of that war, working for the U.S. Embassy as a warden and helping people is, get out. We didn't get out um, when all the ships were coming, but we finally made the escape when the Secretary General of the United Nations, uh, Kofi Annan, at the time said, "You know, ceasefire." So I said, "We're getting out of here." So yeah. in 24 hours, literally, we packed up everything in the dark because we had no electricity and escaped. That's the one minute version of that. Yeah. So I had already had a little bit of practice. <laughs> so by this one, this one, of course, was the scariest because yeah. now I am living with the person from whom I am escaping. 
you have to keep everything quiet and secret. And like almost everybody in the Middle East, we had live-in help. I had to keep it away from the live-in help. Wow. I trusted nobody. Nobody. Only my two friends. Right. Uh, and I told my daughter, don't tell anybody. But, you know, I find out later she did. But anyway, we're here. <laughs> and she said, Mom, we're here. Why are you getting upset? Right. <laughs> so it took a lot of planning. Uh, my brother helped me a lot in, in the planning. I was my brain was not functioning. I looked the same, but there was no brain working really. When, when I planned the escape, I had to figure out the whole plan. But we would go to the United States every year to visit my family. Again, in, the, in Lebanon, I could not just book a flight. I could not, there was no internet for me to just to do that. I couldn't, right. I mean, everybody, it was a small country. Everybody knew everybody. So right. I knew the only way to get out of the country was to get out with him. So I went, you know, under the guise of our regular annual vacation to the United States. And that's what I did. So the three of us are flying Beirut, Paris, because there are no direct flights to the United States from Beirut. Beirut, Paris, Paris, San Francisco. And Paris, San Francisco is an 11-hour flight. And let me tell you, it was the longest 11 hours of my life. I was going to say, that has got to be just, how did you keep your cool for that entire, even from Beirut to Paris, like from the second you walked out of the door to when you landed in San Francisco. When I was planning the escape every day, I told myself, my daughter and I deserve a happy and joyful life. I don't have to be a martyr and this is my life and I want to live my life. And I said that hundreds of times during those four months to keep me going. So, it was my freedom and my daughter's freedom. You don't make a mistake. Yeah. My life was depending on everything, you know, how I behaved. And I had to be careful because, so because you start to get too anxious, you do things on something differently, he's going to call you on it, which he did one time. So, you know, on a scale of one to 10 of, of stress being 110, it was like 110. Yeah. You, you know, desperation and freedom kept me in line that it's that's just incredible i i couldn't imagine having to keep that cool for four months and then do that whole plane ride do you mind telling us what the what is the one thing that he that he caught you on slipping up well normally when we would go to the united states i would go with one suitcase and i would pack another and i would pack that suitcase into a bigger one we did all the shopping in the united states because it's the best place on earth to shop right and so this time i was packing in a different room but i had two suitcases full my daughter had two suitcases full which we never in 20 years of or 20 plus years i've never had two suitcases like never and I just said, oh, uh, and then he come in and they were really heavy. And I says, oh, I just have a lot of gifts I'm giving this year. And he never asked again. But, I was like, but there, was, there were other things. I mean, this interview can go on for three hours, let me tell you. But <laughs> there, there are other scary moments that we pass through but, uh, at the airport. Yeah. Uh, but you know, we, we, landed, we landed at uh, San Francisco International Airport. I'd arranged, uh, my brother was going to be there. I knew exactly where my brother was going to be. There was no guessing. I knew we, we had everything planned out. Um, where we were going to leave my husband was being changed uh, as, as time went over. 
went on, he was getting more aggressive and, and scary. I was, I was scared to death of my, of my ex-husband. Yeah. So anyway, we, we, the three of us pass through the gates. Uh, I see my brother, my daughter and I take our luggage carts and park my cart behind my brother, uh, which is really the first time in decades that I'd ever felt safe. My brother walked over to my ex, you know, my now ex-husband and said, Rosie is upset. She needs some time alone. And then we turn our backs and walk out of the airport, leaving him standing alone in a busy airport, completely stunned. What, I mean, did he ever try to recontact you? Did he ever, was that it? Like you left him there and that was it or? No, of course not. He started contacting the moment we got into the car. Yeah. Calling up the phone, you know, we didn't answer the phone. Then he called my daughter to answer the phone, called my brother, you know. So, yeah, um, he, was, he wasn't going to give up that easily. Um, and, you know, for the, you know, the first, in the beginning, he says, you know, you're the love of my life. I've only loved you, you know. I, you know, I, you know, I want you. And I knew the switch would flip, which it did. It took six months before the switch flipped. Honestly, uh, in the when you think of the cycle of violence and and whatnot, that is a long time for the the switch to flip and and that must have been. How did you? Where did you find the strength and where did you find the courage to not be like, oh, okay, you know, it hasn't. It's been more than two months and he still is acting this way. Is there there maybe there's a possibility he's going to be different this time? Yeah, I had done all that work before I left. I had tried, I had tried even just months before the escape, you know, just kept trying, just kept trying. I'm okay, one more time, one more time. And I just, I just had enough evidence. Mm-hmm. I knew he would never change. And I knew how miserable my daughter and I were both suicidal. Yeah. Um, so we, you know, I, I, I just was not, I was not going to survive if I stayed in that marriage. I would not survive. I would right. not be here. That's what I think a lot of women go through. They, they think that it's either you stay in the marriage or you don't have a life. You don't have anything outside of it. And so for you to make that switch to like, no, if I stay in this marriage, I don't have a life. That. Yeah. I think that's the biggest hurdle that women have to overcome that are in these situations. You know, I'd heard, I mean, I didn't know anything about, again, I didn't know anything about abuse. I didn't know anything about red flags. I didn't know anything about uh, affirmations or mantras or personal development. I knew nothing. Cause remember I was living in the middle East again, like on planet zero, <laughs> you know, on a different part of the world. And I knew nothing. I knew nothing, you know, then I started to, you know, read the book and here and there and started to get bits and pieces. But as far as transformation work, I knew zero. So when I came back here, you know, my daughter and I were diagnosed with, you know, PTSD, my daughter with complex PTSD and depression and anxiety, and just trying to, to, to live and, and then creating and then overcoming, going through the divorce and everything else. And this was an international divorce. Uh, much more complicated than anything else uh, and more expensive than anything else. But as I look at my life today, you know, 10, I'm now a little over 10 years out, 10 years out, I could have never, ever have foreseen 
how wonderful my life is. I could have never have guessed, you know, when I was back there, you know, I think, you know, 10 years ago, but I'm still living back there. I could not force, my mind could not even begin to perceive, oh, you could be out of the relationship. Oh, you could, you could um, start your own business and become an entrepreneur. Oh, you could write a couple of books with some people. Oh, you can become a bestseller. You can become an international best, uh, international award-winning entrepreneur. You can become a speaker. You can find the, the love of your life. Yeah. All that. How could I've ever guessed? How could I've ever guessed that I would create the Love is Kind movement, that I created National Love is Kind Day, and now on this worldwide movement to create more kindness and intimate relationships, to create kinder intimate relationships, kinder families, a kinder community, and a kinder world. So women can, can now learn that they deserve to be treated with kindness. And yes, it does start by being kind to yourself. I could have never foreseen any of that. And I think when women are in this, they can't see it, but we can see it for them. Yeah. And hold that vision for them and that they deserve it. And yes, every woman has to do it on their own. They have to feel secure because I know there's a, don't ever do anything unless you feel safe. <laughs> Number one, I'm not telling anyone just to jump out and leave now, you know, unless you're safe. Um, violence goes up dramatically after they, after you've left them. So you got to make sure you're safe. Definitely. But you do deserve to be treated with kindness. Yeah. And I will continue to shout that mantra forever. And I, I love it. And I think that it's a great segue to go into how you created this. And obviously we know the story behind why you created it. Um, but what was that like to finally have that like aha moment of, I can, I can do this. I can create it on, I can, you know, be an entrepreneur and create this business and then taking the steps into. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, I, when you're planning an escape, let's put it this way. I only had one plan and it was going to work. I, and it did work. I got here and it's like, okay, now what? I mean, I didn't think beyond the escape. Oh, what am I going to do right. with my life? I mean, there, I, my brain did not even, it was like, but then it's like reality sets in. Oh, oh, oh I got to make some money. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, and, and look, when I came back to the United States, I came back in the middle of the Great Recession. So I came back in the middle of the Great Recession. I was older. I was in my late 50s. So again, I want women to hear you can start your life over at any time. So I was in my late 50s. I did contact my old bosses and I thought, you know, I can't go back to the 16-hour days in Silicon Valley. Plus, you know, I wasn't healthy enough mentally with PTSD and my daughter. So right. um, it was easier to start a business and then write a resume. So I slowly took the steps to create a business and then... My daughter and I started to write our memoir. We're still writing it called 11 Hours to Freedom. And during that process is when I got a calling, a very hit in the head kind of calling that this is the work that you're meant to do and to help these women, help these women find their own freedom and, and freedom in a global sense, not freedom necessarily escaping, but you know, even being physically away is not freedom. Right. You know, freedom is when you are freedom, when you, you, you can manage your mind and, and take charge of your life. You know, people are 
not living their life to the fullest. So I took the steps, many, many fall downs, you know, fall downs are constant, you know, you just, and you just, you're forced to pick yourself back up. And I do the best I can to keep these steps. So it's just, you know, and this is the part of the work that I help women with is just helping them move forward. You know, what steps, what, how they need to re-believe in themselves to, to, to start to believe in themselves and get their own voice back, their own yeah. value back, their courage, you know, to take these steps. Yeah. So you, you create this amazing foundation and you, you know, you go on this, this journey of helping these women and how long, how long after your escape was it to when that was created? Well, when I first started business, I was doing something else. I was doing, um, so I've had other little mini entrepreneur um, visions that I, you know, work that I did. And it was, you know, working on the, working on the memoir when it came to helping these women. So it's, it's been a few years. And so, you know, creating the, my main program is the Freedom Fulfillment Foundation, you know, creating that foundation of you you know, building you back up. That's why I call it a foundation gotcha. you know, program, the foundation program. That's what I do to, to help, help these women is build themselves back up block by block. And I've talked to women all over the world. I've talked to uh, women who are, you know, seven, eight figure earners who have been in the same situation as me and that we're all ripped down. You know, we're just, you know, we have so little belief in ourselves. So it doesn't matter how much money you make. It, it doesn't matter if you're a judge, a lawyer, a doctor, um, an entrepreneur, work at McDonald's. It does not matter. You're affected the same way because you're a human being. Exactly. I, what you're doing is so key to the healing process because, like you said, it doesn't matter who you are. If you are stripped, of that belief in yourself, where, where do you go from there? How do you begin to love yourself and then learn how to relive, you know, a, as a thriver, as we call them <laughs> in our, in our foundation is how do you begin to thrive in that life again? If you don't even believe in yourself because of what somebody else has done to you. And the natural thing is, you know, we want to be connected. So it's to avoid getting into wrong relationships again, you know? And that's one thing my program does is you know, women, you, you know, it's like, like don't date, <laughs> you know, you, study, right. you do this because, you know, you're, you're, you're working off the same old beliefs and they're now, they're ingrained in you and you don't even know it. So we have, you know, your brain's already been rewired by the abuse. Then on, you know, that, which has been buried, by your other deep beliefs. So now you're all, you know, it's like, you don't know what you want. I had to learn to accept being treated with kindness. And many women, you know, as I talk to these women, the same thing, it's like, yeah, because it doesn't feel normal. Yeah. And it, it can also get jaded in a sense because of that honeymoon phase in the cycle mm -hmm. of violence where it's like, well, he's treating me nice. Like my abuser treated me nice. So is it, that he's just trying to manipulate me or is it because it's truly he's a kind human being and he's a, a, a person that is trying to just show me affection 
Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, um, and then you have to have to know, is it real or is it not real? But you, 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 you don't, you know that by knowing yourself and knowing the behaviors. I always say, just look at the pattern of the behaviors. I mean, I can just pick it out. I, um, people tell me stories that, you know, if they don't ask for advice or thing, I don't say anything, but it's like, I can see it coming. And then later on, it's like, yeah, you know, I can see, I can just see behaviors now in somebody else. You yeah. look for the patterns. You exactly. just look for the patterns. Sometimes the patterns may take a little while before they, they form, but, but that's why right. you shouldn't rush into, you know, women should not rush into a relationship. You said that you're writing, you and your daughter are writing your memoir, um, mm -hmm. 11 Hours to Freedom. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, what else are you working on moving forward? And, and like, what are your goals for 2020 or 2022 mm -hmm. and 21? And I'm launching uh, a podcast, uh, getting that ready to go. I'm launching a podcast. I, I'm uh, launching new programs, getting you know, involved with more women. I, I have the Love is Kind uh, movement on Facebook, growing that uh, to be a you know, worldwide community. So it's really uh, in a membership program to really you know, reach out. The goals are to reach out to more women, to impact more women, to be on the speaking circuit. I'm a speaker. Not you know not done podcast but live speaking yeah and to and to you know get on to as many stages as possible and have women hear this message that their life is really you know your life is important you matter you have value you are worthy and you deserve to be treated with kindness and you're not going to get to the steps unless you know what they are and that's what you know I do in the Love Is Kind Network is doing that for them helping them take the steps, not alone. No, nothing gets done alone. I did that for 25 years. So that's been the big, another big message is not, don't think you can do this alone. It's just impossible. Definitely. So um, wrapping up here, we ask our listeners um, the same questions at the end of every interview. So I'm going to ask you the same questions. What is something that you can recommend to our listeners um, to help them through a tough situation that, you know, maybe it's a, um, just a mantra that you tell yourself or something that has gotten you through tough situations? Well, <laughs> and the mantra that I teach everybody is, you know, and the one that I taught myself is, you know, they can just say, I deserve to be treated with kindness. I deserve to be treated with kindness and it starts with myself. I have one life to live. I am worthy. I love that. I think that a lot of women don't feel worthy. They don't feel like they deserve things in life and that, you know, that this is a situation I'm in. And so it must be what I deserve. And yeah. And oh no. Not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. You deserve a happy and joyful life. Yes. You do. Um, so our second question is um, now, do you have a, a book or a podcast or ebook or anything that you recommend to our listeners, whether it be about mindset or domestic violence or, um, you know, just something that'll help them get through something. It, it, it's up mm -hmm. to you, whatever your favorite book is. <laughs> or podcast. So there are a couple things. One, they can go to my website and they can go to the loveiskindnetwork.com forward slash gift. And there is a free guidebook on how to, you know, ask for your needs. I mean, women, you know, especially if you've been in this situation, you don't even know how to ask. You, you, don't, you, don't, you don't even know how to articulate your, your needs, what you want. 
So that's one. And then the other book that I would recommend is the one that, that I will say saved my life. Um, that's called The Verbally Abusive Relationship by Patricia Evans. I have read hundreds, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, hundreds of books. Um, hers was the very first one that I read that saved my life. Um, and that's if you're, you're not sure if you're in it or not to help you, but I, I, I like her a lot. And she and I have now become very close friends. That's amazing. That is so cool. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. is awesome. Yeah. Um, next question is, what would the new you say to the old you? Um, this is a, I, I love this question because um, it's so easy to, to bash ourselves. And I would say the new me is that you did the best you could. You did the best you could and you're doing, a, you know, and, um, and be compassionate with yourself. That hits the nail on the head. You have to, you have to be willing to forgive yourself for mm -hmm. anything that happened because it, it's not something that you wanted to happen or that you were trying to make happen. It, it was a circumstance that mm -hmm. you were placed into. And you, again, like you said, you did the best you could. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Definitely agree with that. Um, finally, how can our listeners reach you if they want to hear more from you or about you? Well, great. I appreciate you asking that. Um, they can go to theloveiskindnetwork.com. And again, they can grab that gift, theloveiskind.network.com um, the forward slash gift. There's also the contact page. Um, and if they want to, uh, they can go to, it's called Freedom Fulfillment quiz.com freedomfulfillmentquiz.com it takes four minutes it will t it will show within four minutes you know where they are and where they want to go and we can have a conversation after that so i invite them to to take advantage of that awesome rosie thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story and sharing everything that you're doing after this and how you went from surviving to thriving thank you heather if you or anyone you know has been victimized by domestic violence, please reach out to us for resources and ways our organization can help you. You can find us on social media at 2thrivingatl, T-O, thriving, A-T-L, or online at 2thriving.org.